Welcome to Head and Neck Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Ed Kim to obtain an overview of key recent research developments in the field, and he began our conversation by commenting on the emerging role of cetuximab. EGFR was first tested in head and neck cancers, and it made quite sense to do so as it's a very heavily enriched type of epithelium. They are squamous cell carcinomas, and when we refer to head and neck cancers throughout our discussion here, we will just be focusing on the squamous cell cancers. And obviously in the head and neck cancer tumor region, greater than 90% of the cancers will be squamous. We're also, when we talk about these head and neck cancers, we will exclude sinus cancers, nasopharynx, adenoid cystics, those types of cancers, and focus traditionally on the oral cavity, oral pharynx, hypopharynx, and larynx type tumors. Epidermal growth factor receptor, some of the pioneering work was done by Jennifer Grandis and Dong Shen and others where they were able to find high expression levels and it seemed like a suitable target for EGFR-directed therapies. Now, one of the earliest ones we had was monoclonal antibodies, namely cetuximab. Cetuximab, as you know, was discovered by our president, John Mendelson, and it was a very nice molecule. It was a chimerized molecule. It was an isotope of IgG1. And so you not only had the direct cytotoxic activity, but you also had ADCC, which is sort of the complement activity that could also enhance this type of strategy. EGFR seemed to be overexpressed in many tumor types, as well as serve as a prognostic indicator. Other ligands that bind EGFR, including TGF-alpha and afiregulin, also seem to be prognostic in this particular tumor type. And so it really was a nice model to test. The early cetuximab studies looked at combining with chemotherapy, such as cisplatin, and there was a lot of good data, especially with chemotherapy, that cetuximab could not only synergize with chemotherapy, but also help overcome resistance to drugs like cisplatin. So you could give someone cisplatin and 5-FU, for instance, and they would then begin progressing. You could then add cetuximab to the cisplatin and show you could get a response. And so that was very nice. This is, again, late 90s research, early 2000s. And then as further testing went, Preclinically, this drug looked fantastic with radiation, and so that led to a series of experiments and small trials, which culminated with Dr. Bonner's report at ASCO and now published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at cetuximab with radiation versus radiation alone in patients with locally advanced head and neck cancers and did demonstrate superiority with the cetuximab. The bonus in this whole thing other than rash and hypersensitivity reactions, really was that it added no increased toxicity to the radiation, namely mucositis and other related toxicities. Where are we right now with cetuximab off-study? Well, right now, the two indications that cetuximab has, number one is in combination with radiation in locally advanced tumors. The second indication is in patients who are platinum refractory. So we think of that as a second or third line metastatic or recurrent drug. The study, and we have to remember and take a step back, was radiotherapy alone versus radiotherapy cetuximab. So patients who were enrolled in this study had to be felt that you could treat them with radiation alone and that would be adequate. 
Now again, this particular tumor type, and you touched on this, Neil, that this is a complex tumor type, is not medical oncology friendly. What do I mean by that? Well, the surgeons and the radiotherapists have largely driven a lot of the early therapy in this field. And so now medical oncology, with some of the new drugs, with the tolerability and effectiveness of chemotherapy, is starting to be an important member of this team. And so it really emphasizes the fact is, is that you have to have a good team to treat head and neck cancers. And that's not just the surgeon, not just the radiotherapist, not just the medical oncologist. The dentist is an extremely important person who needs to do thorough dental exams and extract any teeth that might be decayed prior to getting radiotherapy. You need to have speech pathologists work with the patient because swallowing function will be impaired due to these therapies. And the rehabilitation, just like an athlete has to rehabilitate their knee after the surgery, these patients need to learn how to rehabilitate their muscles and relearn swallowing. And then nutritionists are very important. Clearly, that patients will lose weight and some of them require percutaneous feeding tubes. But these are all very important members to try and help these patients get through this therapy because of the real problem with local toxicities. So again, in a non-protocol setting right now, what are the situations where you're using cetuximab in locally advanced disease? So we tend to use cetuximab in patients that perhaps have minimal bulk disease, clearly N1 disease with oropharynx. Oropharynx is a very radiosensitive tumor. In a patient also that we don't want to give high-dose cisplatin to, if you were to Ask anyone in a standard patient who requires chemoradiation, i.e. having bulky neck nodes, primary tumor in an unfavorable place like the hypopharynx or base of the tongue, then concurrent chemoradiation is still the answer. And that is with high-dose cysts based on the earlier studies. The RTOG is trying to answer a question right now as to whether giving cisplatin with cetuximab in combination with radiation is better than giving just radiation and cisplatin. What's the design of that study? It is a two-arm randomization. So patients with locally advanced tumors are allowed to enter and either receive radiotherapy. They have defined what types of radiotherapy you can give as far as the techniques, but essentially you're getting cisplatin in both arms, and then one arm receives the extra herbitux. The hope in a study like that is that you add additional synergistic efficacy with the Herbitux. I don't think we'd be too happy with just additive toxicity. And in fact, it might be that we don't get much benefit at all, but hopefully we will without the expense of toxicity. What other information do we have about this issue of chemoradiation therapy plus cetuximab, not just in terms of efficacy, but also in terms of safety? The safety with cetuximab has been very good. You don't seem to see exacerbations with mucositis. Clearly, you don't have any myelosuppression, and that is one of the big issues when we use a drug like cisplatin is that we do get myelosuppressive issues, and many times patients have to be delayed from their chemotherapy. We try to plan three doses over a seven-week period, but many times patients only can receive two doses. The beauty of a drug like cetuximab is that you don't have these side effects. It really is just rash, and you know you're only getting eight doses, so the rash will go away. And if you really present that as a possible alternative treatment, 
then patients are very amenable to that. Now, what about the other parts of your algorithm and specifically the selection of chemo radiation therapy and the issue of induction therapy? Well, that's a, a very big bag of worms you're asking me to explain there, Neil. The debate will go on between whether you give an induction regimen first in a locally advanced head and neck cancer patient or you start with concurrent chemoradiation. The purists and probably where the data speaks the heaviest right now is the right thing to do is concurrent chemoradiation. We do not have a study right now that compares head-to-head induction followed by concurrent versus concurrent alone. We do know that induction strategies work extremely well in certain tumor types. We know in lung cancer, for instance, that induction did not work so well. So I think it's better than lung cancer because we get better response rates, and chemotherapy can even cause an occasional CR, complete response, in head and neck patients. But there is a study being done at Dana-Farber and at multiple sites that Marshall Posner is leading called the Paradigm Study that is looking at induction chemotherapy, and it is with taxotere, cisplatin, and 5-FU, followed by concurrent chemoradiation versus an upfront concurrent chemoradiation strategy with cisplatin. I can tell you from our own practice at MD Anderson, we generally look at the lymph nodes and would consider, and I stress that word consider, induction therapy in patients who have N2B or greater disease, and that's meaning multiple ipsilateral lymph nodes in the neck. The current indication for induction chemotherapy is actually not based on Marshall Posner's study. It's actually based on a study called TAX-323, which was Dr. Vermorkin's study. This study actually used four cycles of induction TPF and then followed by radiation alone. The data was compelling when compared to another chemotherapy regimen, platinum 5-FU. So what we learned was TPF, without the expensive toxicities, was better in patients than starting with PF, or platinum 5-FU. The problem was, again, we didn't get to that question that you asked as far as, is it better than starting with upfront concurrent chemoradiation? Now, as opposed to what the Vermorkin study, again, what's on the package label, would say to do, in the United States, we don't generally like to give four rounds of induction therapy. Three cycles is adequate, and then we don't want to delay the curative therapy, which is the radiation, much longer than that. What do you yourself do in terms of induction therapy? When do you use it, and which regimen do you use? When we look at a head and neck cancer patient, we want to consider, obviously, their performance status, their cardiovascular status, their age, their kidney function, all of those things. And it first helps us decide whether the patient is a candidate for chemotherapy, systemic or not. Now, clearly, the disease burden has to be on the higher side. And as I discussed previously, the N2B or greater is generally where we start considering induction chemotherapy. And then patients will go on to receive radiation with some sort of chemotherapy. From my standpoint, those are the patients that, from their bulk of disease in their neck, I consider for induction chemotherapy. Now, which type of induction chemotherapy would you use? Well, we know that platinum and 5-FU, which was the old historical standard, is inferior to taxotere platinum 5-FU. 
without any trade-off in side effects. So you're not adding side effects by adding the taxatier. Sometimes there is an occasional patient who cannot tolerate TPF. And when we do give TPF, I do give it three cycles. I do give it with growth factors. I will start patients with two cycles and then restage them to make sure everything is shrinking down. The patient knows before anybody because this stuff works pretty well. You can see the tumors just shrink in front of you. And again, it attests to the fact that squamous cells of the head and neck are very chemosensitive tumors. After completing the third round of chemotherapy, that's when I send them back to radiation therapy and they get them simulated and get them started. In patients who I feel maybe have not so good cardiac status or their comorbidities are adding up or their kidney function is not so good and we really would like to start them with induction, then we sometimes substitute carbo for cis and sometimes we drop the 5-FU. Again, there is no data to support a strategy like that. Many of us actually wondered if cisplatin and taxotere was as good as taxotere platinum and 5-FU, but that study hasn't been done and probably won't ever be done. But in the general sense of induction, if you had a fit patient and they were doing fine, many times oncologists in the past would just pick a drug like either platinum 5-FU or carboplatin and paclitaxel, which we're all used to using, clearly there's a better regimen now, and that is TPF. And so if you decide to do induction, and if the patient can tolerate it, TPF is what you should use these days. You mentioned the issue of myelotoxicity. What else do you see specifically with TPF, and how much of a problem is neutropenia when you're using growth factors? When I use the growth factors, I don't see too much neutropenia. It tends to control it very well. Most of the side effects that I've seen from TPF really are based on the 5-FU. And patients will describe a mucositis or sort of a hand-foot syndrome. And those types of toxicities have been the thing to compel me to either hold the 5-FU or decrease it. But generally, if a patient is doing well and you can keep their blood counts up, they tolerate the regimen decently. What about the types of patients that are being treated today compared to 10 or 15 years ago? You know, a lot of us, I think, have this image of the patient who's been abusing alcohol and tobacco, a lot of comorbidities, difficult to treat. Is that still kind of the face of head and neck cancer, so to speak? Well, as I tell people when I discuss head and neck cancer, we are still University of Texas, not just MD Anderson. And so we will see patients from a variety of occupations, a variety of socioeconomic class. And I would say the same patient I see that you just described, who is maybe indigent and abusing alcohol and smoking, I will see a lawyer the same way. That is smoking, abusing alcohol, and they can have just as bad a disease. Now, the real difficulty with head and neck cancer goes back to the team approach that I discussed. You've got to have a lot of people helping the patient. Additionally, the patient has to have a lot of responsibility in following up with all of these different professionals and trying to rehabilitate themselves. They just can't do a surgery or they just can't do a radiation and go on their merry way. They really have to stick it in there and do the rehab to get better because we know these things can come back and they want to be prepared for that. I would say that the population of head and neck cancers is also getting younger. We know that HPV in particular is playing a role, especially in these oropharyngeal cancers. 
Now, if it is an HPV-related tumor, those patients seem to do better prognostically. We don't really change the therapy on these patients, but we can look at series, and Maura Gillison has done much of this work from Johns Hopkins, that there is a positive prognostic factor if you are HPV-related, and that could be related to the fact that some of these patients don't smoke or they have a very minimal smoking history. And as you described, Neil, over time, I think the attitude towards treating patients with head and neck cancer has changed. Treating lung cancer myself as well as head and neck, we know that the tobacco aspect is very discriminatory, and patients will not perhaps get the benefit of the doubt with the next therapy or the next therapy. Many times we'll be told there's not a lot left to do. We know with breast cancer or colon cancer, many times the physicians and the patients have very heroic aspirations, and we see good outcomes with some of those patients. I think in head and neck cancer, we realize there are more therapies available and that these therapies can work, such as cetuximab, such as docetaxel. Now we have two drugs that are FDA-approved. More are certainly being tested, such as the EGFR TKIs, as you mentioned. We had a study at ASCO combining erlotinib with cisplatin and docetaxel, which showed some very nice results as far as response rate and time to progression. So I think the attitude toward treating patients with head and neck cancer is changing. And I think if we continue to see that, we will see improvements in overall survival and including quality of life. Do we know sort of what fraction nationally or even within an institution like yours of patients with head and neck present with essentially no history of smoking or alcohol use? It's rare, but it is increasing. I can't really cite you a number, Neil. People are looking at that. I would still probably say it's less than 10%. It can be other things as well. And being trained as a prevention person and someone who's been involved with prevention research We have other offending agents that can certainly lead to cancers. I think one of the saddest cases I've ever seen was a young person who was a mouthwash tester and never smoked. And so, you know, when we treat patients, we tell them, use water-based solutions. Don't use alcohol-based solutions. Treat the inside of your mouth like a baby's bottom. We don't want to irritate it with either too hot or too cold foods or too spicy foods. Because we know if we believe in this concept of field cancerization, that there could be other areas that certainly could pop up. And second primary tumors or local recurrence are always a big problem in this patient population, especially those who have smoked. That's fascinating about the mouthwash testing. I mean, I guess there are not that many people who do that. But I mean, has anyone tried to sort of do a case series to see what goes on there? You know, it was a very unfortunate case, and you can't say that it was necessarily because of the mouthwash. It could have just been a simple coincidence, but that was really the one iatrogenic type of event that was occurring on a regular basis. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of predictors of prognosis and also predictors of response in head and neck cancer. We've seen preclinical data, and we've seen from tissue specimens, and Kian Eng has done this work as well as Luca Milas, that in fact... A rich EGFR population can lead to worse outcomes. And so it makes sense if you can give a therapy that will decrease the EGFR expression or inhibit it so that it may optimize your therapy better against the cells. And that's one of the things that everybody's been looking for is predictive markers and what can we do up front I think we are working on some prognostic factors, and EGFR expression is one of those. We know that it is a worse outcome. 
we know that overexpression of some of these ligands like TGF-alpha and others can also be prognostic factors. We know that things like rash can lead to good prognostic factors, but we don't know if we should continue to dose a drug like cetuximab until we get a rash. So the development of a rash due to therapy is harder to say. We cannot say that people will do better or not. We can just say that retrospectively, when we look, that patients who have higher grades of rash seem to live longer. And this has been pretty consistent with the cetuximab story throughout the different disciplines, including colon and others. HPV is now looking like a positive prognostic factor. So if you do have HPV, it seems like those patients will do better. And we've tried to search for other things as well. ERCC1 has been looked at, and again, because that may affect cisplatin, that's something logically to look at. And there was an abstract at ASCO looking at that in a retrospective manner and something that should be tested prospectively. We've searched for mutations in the head and neck area and haven't found those, and that's not surprising. Christine Chung has reported on fish positivity, but again, it's hard to say how we're going to use that prospectively. And so many people have looked at different markers, and it's a little bit like lung cancer, where we're finding some things. However, we're not able to direct treatment based on any of these factors as of yet. But I can tell you the multiple analyses that have been done with colorectal, with prior head and neck cancer trials, and even a lung trial that we're going to publish soon, all show that higher grade of rash led to better survival. Are there any situations, and actually I can recall there was a presentation by Van Kutzum and colon cancer where they tried to escalate the dose of cetuximab, and it looked like maybe they got better response rates. Is there any similar data in head and neck, and is there any situation where you actually might do that off-study? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Neil, because we know that the doses we're giving cetuximab at right now are not the dose-limiting areas at all. In fact, you know you can give more. Uh, We can give 400, and that's pretty safe. People don't seem to have adverse events. That was more as a loading dose so that you can maintain a steady state. But there are some studies planned looking at dose escalation, not specifically in head and neck, but I think to explore this concept as you've described. Again, we don't have any data that increasing the dose of cetuximab adds any benefit right now. And it's been tried more so with the TKIs to look at increasing the dose to rash. And the problem is you may get a better response. The question is, does that response correlate to survival? And in fact, in the lung cancer literature, when they've looked at mutational status, which we know gives you a better response, survival hasn't necessarily been advantageous over a matched control with a mutation to who's just getting traditional therapy. So again, these dose-to-response studies are going to be difficult to interpret. They really have to be larger to assess some sort of survival endpoint, but those become very difficult and costly. And, and then the question will be begged, well, is this where we should be studying or should we try to explore other areas where drugs like this may work? What about the issue of cetuximab and EGFR inhibitors in general and radiation therapy? First, from a biologic point of view, I mean, it seems like forever that we've been hearing about different agents potentiating radiation therapy. But I think when those data were presented at ASCO, everybody sort of gasped when they saw those curves. I mean, it was really something different that maybe, I don't know that we've seen that before. Do you think there's sort of a biologic explanation for why there was so much synergy? 
Well, we can only go back to say that the preclinical models, when they looked at them, looked very promising. Now, remember, we see this type of effect with cisplatin as well, as well as chemotherapy. I bet if you used a taxane in the same type of setting, you would also see this type of effect. So the concept of radiosensitization is very valid, and that's why it begs the question of, is a biological agent as good as a chemotherapeutic agent? Now, until we have a head-to-head, -head, which we're not going to for quite some time, we cannot make that extrapolation. I think what people were really impressed with was that it was a biological agent. You know, everybody had sort of been focused on the TKIs and other studies, but when the Cetuximab Bonner data came out, just as you say, everybody was shocked, surprised, and happy because here was another drug that showed clear survival benefit causing as a radiosensitizer. And if you actually think about how many drugs in the history of cancer have been FDA-approved initially as a radiosensitizer, these are extremely difficult trials to conduct because of all the associated side effects of the radiotherapy that's being delivered. And so this was unprecedented in how it presented. We know in lung cancer, for instance, when Dr. Dillman reported the data, it was induction chemo. It was not concurrent. So giving chemotherapy followed by radiation was better than radiation alone. So this was truly a sensitization standpoint, the first time we've seen something this dramatic. And the fact that it had less toxicities, I think, was extremely good. Now, we can hypothesize as to why this biologic agent may work. Is it signaling through AKT? Is it because of the receptor status? Is it because the cetuximab downregulates the receptor? We can get into cell cycle checkpoints, all these different things. But I think the bottom line is that it worked as well as chemo, and that was what really impressed everybody. Well, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that, from what I could tell, it didn't seem like it made the toxicities of radiation therapy that much worse or even worse. I mean, was that your take? Absolutely. Which and is I, like it's I a think, little counterintuitive if you think about it. Well, I think many of us were worried that rash might become a problem in the radiated field, especially. Right, right. What's ironic, as we've observed afterwards, is that in patients who have had radiation to an area and you give them cetuximab, they actually do not develop a rash in that radiated area. What's your sort of clinical impression as you see people go through radiation therapy with cetuximab as opposed to chemotherapy, sort of qualitatively, how much of a difference does it make in terms of their quality of life and just sort of getting them through it? Well, as long as the rash is managed correctly, and again, it's not too severe, if a patient doesn't have a hypersensitivity reaction, which you can get with taxanes and other drugs, they tolerate it beautifully. It is very easy to give. It is weekly, but patients don't mind. And again, when they are dealing with side effects, it's harder for the radiotherapist to blame the oncologist for any of the side effects. When we're giving high-dose cysts, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, that's the cisplatin that's causing that problem. Actually, with Herbitux, we can say, no, that's not due to Herbitux. That is due to the radiotherapy that you're receiving, and that's why you're hurting in there. So it's sort of, from a medical oncology standpoint, been a great equalizer to demonstrate, you know, the significant toxicities that can occur with radiotherapy. But, of course, it is the curative therapy. Now, when you think about the algorithm, when you think about clinical research, when you think about this whole area, where does the location of the primary sort of fit in? Well, it does matter. You haven't heard a lot about this because the Bonner trial was only 400-some-odd patients. But if you actually look at the subsets of the disease site, 
in the trial, you'll see that there was really one site, the oropharynx, that had a huge benefit. You'd expect that. It's the most radiosensitive. Whereas the larynx and hypopharynx, not so much. Those survival differences are lower. Now, granted, the populations and the number of patients there are lower, but we know that there are more difficult areas to achieve long-term cure than others. And so sight makes a very big difference. If you are talking about a patient who has lymph node positivity and is an oropharynx primary, you're more apt to rely more on the radiation as a primary therapy and less so on chemotherapy to cure that patient. However, if they're a base of the tongue or hypopharynx, and those are the patients that, again, radiotherapy works okay, but you want a little bit more help with chemotherapy, now is when you start thinking about induction or using the high-dose cisplatin. Is there any way you can try to sort out intuitively why differences in different locations might respond differently? And also, does that apply when you correct for stage? Well, staging is tough, too, because everyone is basically a stage 3-4 that we see. If you have any lymph node positivity, you become a 3. And if the lymph node is greater than 1, you become a stage 4, essentially. And you have three different stage 4s based on the size of the tumor. So a stage 4 in head and neck is not necessarily a stage 4 in breast. That just means that you have locally advanced disease that's metastatic to the lymph nodes that are local. And so everyone we treat is essentially a 3 and a 4. The stage 1s and 2s will largely benefit from just local therapy, either with radiation or surgery, again, depending on the site. When we consider those factors, that's one of the problems in head and neck that you're touching on is that it is really a conglomeration of diseases. And that's why a lot of people don't like to go into the field. It's tough to separate out those factors. Sometimes the tumors cross boundaries, so you don't know if it's originating in the base of the tongue or in the piriform sinus, or if there's extension from the oral cavity, if it extended up or extended down. So these are all the variables, and we know that something, for instance, like oral tongue cancers or oral cavity cancers do not respond well to radiotherapy. They generally don't respond well to chemotherapy, and really surgery is the best option for many of these patients. So it does require a little bit more study. I think down the road, we're going to try and be a little bit more homogenous as far as the site of tumor origin and testing those patients prospectively. But right now, we're extremely happy to answer the questions that we can. We always got to answer the forest first, and then we'll start picking apart the trees and seeing what's best. Maybe cisplatin isn't best for the oropharynx tumors because those are very highly sensitive to radiotherapy, and it's overkill when we use cisplatin like that, whereas we shouldn't use other drugs per se or lower-dose drugs in more unfavorable sites like hypopharynx because of the fact is, is that these tend to do more poorly. Now, there have been hypotheses as far as why this is. You know, Larynx tumors tend to do pretty well because they're earlier diagnosed, just like oral cavity. You get those symptoms earlier on. It's more about getting the early symptoms versus having insidious symptoms. We know that in the hypopharynx, these things do the worst because the different symptoms are very silent and you just might have a little fullness in your throat. And by the time they get diagnosed, they're usually at a little bit more advanced stage. What other tumors is cetuximab being looked at in terms of radiation therapy sensitization? It seems like with these kinds of exciting findings that there are a whole bunch of diseases that maybe this could be looked at. 
Well, I think it is exciting, and even outside of radiation, which I will get to, it is being looked at in lung cancer with radiation. They've finished the phase one and two data that George Blumenshine from our department has reported, and they are going to move to a phase three eventually, testing it in lung cancer. And this again, is stage three? Diff- yes, in stage three, locally advanced. And now is this with chemotherapy also? It is with chemotherapy. I believe they're using carboplatin and paclitaxel with right. the Herbitux. Makes sense. Now, Herbitux, this is a drug outside of the head and neck and colon cancer arena that I feel personally has been pushed aside a little bit. A lot of these drugs that we're talking about these days are the TKIs, the VEGFs, the, you know, you've done many of these programs where those are the hot topics. But we can't forget Herbitux. And now that we've heard a press release that, in fact, combining cetuximab with chemotherapy, cisphenorelbine, this is the FLEX study, looked positive. In other words, there was a positive survival endpoint. We don't know the numbers. We don't know any of the details. This drug is a good player in many tumor types. And if it's true, and there is a significant benefit in lung cancer, that opens up an entire arena again for rediscovering this antibody and being tested again in the radiotherapy standpoints. In head and neck, it looks like it's going to be tested in the induction setting as well as already established in the concurrent setting. The extreme data points to it in the metastatic setting with chemotherapy, and it's already approved as a single agent after chemotherapy. So that's all four bases there. And even furthermore, looking at it in combination with radiation when radiation is given as adjuvant therapy after surgical resection. So in head and neck, it would cover all of the bases should those trials become positive. In lung, they're testing it in the locally advanced setting with radiation and chemotherapy. It's reported positive in the first-line metastatic setting with chemotherapy. We are conducting a very large study throughout the country called the SELECT study, which is Olympta or Taxotere plus or minus Herbitux. We launched this study several years ago based on some promising phase two data. It had been very slow to accrue, and I really didn't know why, because Combining Herbitux with chemotherapy works in different tumor types, and yet people get more excited about the newer drugs or the different classes. And so I don't think we want to forget Herbitux too quickly. Ovarian cancer is another area that may make sense, and really any squamous epithelial cancer that receives radiation, whether that's cervical cancer or others, may have a benefit from a drug like cetuximab. You mentioned the extreme study. Can you talk about the design and the findings and how you bring that into your practice? Yeah, the extreme study was a very nice proof of principle study that validated EGFR even more so than the Bonner study. Now, why do I say that? When we talked about the Bonner study, we know that the concept of radiosensitizers works with chemotherapy. It now works with EGFR-directed therapy. What we didn't know with chemotherapy was whether you could combine an EGFR drug with chemotherapy to show a benefit. Now we have to trace back in the literature. Prior studies in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer showed that two drugs were no better than one drug. And Dr. Forstier and Dr. Jacobs have reported intergroup and SWOG data to suggest that. And so some people felt that methotrexate was a valid single-agent option in recurrent metastatic. And based on the old studies, you could not dispute that. Now we have, for the first time, a proof of principle that three drugs, platinum, 5-FU, cetuximab, was better than two drugs. 
and we've never seen that before. Now, the addition of the cetuximab did not seem to exacerbate side effects other than the classical cetuximab side effects, and the survival was improved by almost three months. Now, we have not heard the response rate or the progression-free survival yet, but still, the survival was better. I would assume that this drug is now going to be incorporated in the first-line setting in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. The big question everybody will ask is, well, is it okay to use Herbitux if you've already treated the patient with radiation and Herbitux and or chemotherapy previously? And my current opinion about that is that we would treat it the same like chemotherapy. For instance, if you had a patient who was receiving concurrent chemotherapy and radiation and progressed within six months of finishing their radiotherapy, that is a very poor prognostic patient. In fact, those patients are probably going to be platinum resistant and you have to find some sort of alternative therapy. However, if you did give a patient platinum with radiation and they had a nice greater than six month disease control situation, probably a year, and then they recurred, you would not hesitate in giving that patient a platinum with some other therapy. So I would apply the same thing to Herbitux. If you had a patient who received locally advanced therapy with Herbitux, had a disease-free interval greater than six months, and then the recurrence came back and it was metastatic or recurrent, then I think you could give Herbitux with chemotherapy in hopes of having a meaningful survival. There was a presentation at the ASCA meeting by Wanabo looking at cetuximab combined with induction paclitaxel carbo. What were your thoughts about that? Well, I think the addition of Herbitux, and again, you're going to see this often, and again, adding it to TPF is one of the strategies that's being done out there as well, is a good one in that you are trying to enhance synergy, efficacy, and not add too much to the toxicity. The problem with the study that Dr. Wadabo presented was I think he tried to ask too many questions, and I give him a lot of credit for trying. There were biopsies integrated into that study, and they were going to make decisions based on biopsies. I really think it was a noble attempt, but I am uncertain how much meaningful biopsy or biomarker data we're going to receive from it. I think he's right on track as far as how we want to conduct studies, but again, you have to get tissue on everybody. We don't know what markers are prognostic at this point as far as with therapy. And so I think his trial showed that it's feasible to give induction therapy with Herbitux in combination. But as far as getting some meaningful answers, I hope he's able to get enough tissue to be able to make some sort of risk assessment afterwards. Well, it looks like they had quite a few pathologic complete remissions there, and they reported 67%. So they're not going to have any post-treatment tissue in a bunch of these people. Yeah, and that becomes the issue is that even though we see clinical CRs, we don't know if there's actually disease there unless we do neck dissections. And now we don't necessarily do neck dissections in everybody because of morbidity. And so you can put a needle in there, and you know as well as I do, a needle doesn't necessarily go where you want it to go. Sure. And so there were a lot of variables that Dr. Keyes discussed as a discussant on that abstract. What about erlotinib and the TKI EGFRs and head and neck cancer? You've done a lot of work on that. Where are we right now with that? We're very encouraged from the activity that we've seen. This was a study that we wrote back in 2002, 
and launched in 2004 and finished it up in 2006. This was the combination of cisplatin and docetaxel built on the data that Bonnie Glisson had reported on Tax 211 that it was just as good a regimen as any out there for head and neck cancer. The median survival actually was over nine months in that study. It was a multi-center phase two, and so we wanted to add a TKI to it. Now, lung cancer specialists would say that's not a good idea based on the largely disappointing results that we saw in the lung cancer trials combining drugs like Tarceva or Iressa with chemotherapy, and especially the sort of anecdotes that exist about males, smokers, and squamous cell, they say it's even a worse idea. And so who do we have in head and neck cancer? Men, smokers, and squamous cell. But again, EGFR seems to be a very important pathway in head and neck, and head and neck is head and neck, and lung is lung. So we moved forward with it. We had a 66% response rate. We had a very high response rate in previously radiated fields. There was some neutropenic fever associated with the regimen, but growth factors pretty much eliminated that. And we showed a progression-free survival of six months as opposed to historical standards in four months. Now, this was not a randomized study. It was a single-center IST, a phase two study. And so I would view this as something that was promising. Do you see any role in a non-protocol setting right now for erlotinib and head and neck? Yeah, I would say both in treatment and in research. Now, clearly, this is off-label. They're not indicated for head and neck cancer. The TKIs are major players. In fact, some of the research that we're trying to conduct in our department is combining EGF with VEGF, combining EGF with IGF, insulin-like growth factor receptor signaling pathways. Many times these drugs are synergistic with drugs like the mTOR inhibitors, and so they can serve as a very nice complement, and giving someone an EGFR drug is a good therapy for head and neck cancer. So although there's not an indication necessarily this drug has been used, and the nice thing about both Tarceva and Arisa is, is that they can go through a feeding tube. Many times oral drugs have difficulty dissolving, and you're not allowed to with some of them. What about panitumumab and head and neck? Well, panitumumab is also a very nice antibody. The PACE study, where they combined it with Avastin, was a bit disappointing and concerning. That was the study in colorectal. It unfortunately has led to some slowdown in the sort of research in other tumor types, but I know Marshall Posner has studied this drug, and we were planning to as well. This drug does not have the side effects of cetuximab as far as the infusion reactions. It still does cause rash. People on both sides would argue that makes it worse or better. What do we mean? Well, it isn't an IgG1, then it doesn't have the antibody-dependent complement cytotoxicity, and perhaps maybe it's an inferior drug. Well, again, that's hypothetical. We've not seen a head-to-head as far as whether one is better than the other, and I would say at this point they are similar drugs. Clearly, cetuximab is ahead of the game because they have shown efficacy in randomized studies, whereas panituumab has not yet. But would I give up on a drug like panituumab? Absolutely not. I would encourage them to continue to study this drug, especially in a tumor type like head and neck cancer, where you know EGFR is a validated pathway. I mean, too many times we see companies, investigators, government give up in an indication. Now, if that were the case, when Avastin was approved in non-small cell lung cancer, why is it that everybody else's VEGF drug is being tested now in lung cancer? 
because the first study with Avastin validated that VEGF may have a role. So it actually is more of a positive signal to encourage more research in that area to try and get better. In head and neck cancer, EGFR is clearly a validated signal, and any company with an EGFR drug should be rushing to try and get an indication in that tumor type because you know it's a validated signal. You just have to do the study now to get your drug onto the market. The last thing I want to ask you about is we've talked a number of times about the issue of rash, and you had a fascinating paper which uh, you co-authored with two of my favorite people, Tom Lynch and Mario Lacouture, the dermato-oncologist, I guess you could say. And I wonder if you could kind of summarize the thinking that went into this paper, looking at the whole issue of EGFR inhibitors and cutaneous toxicity, and what were some of the conclusions that you and your group came up with? I applaud the two other people that you mentioned, Neil, both Tom with his nurses and his team of oncologists and oncology professionals up at Mass General, as well as Mario Lacatur, who, from a dermatologic standpoint, and I'd probably call him an oncologic dermatologist right. and then a dermatologic oncologist, yeah. I praise them because this is an area... He's where, actually an EGFR oncologist. Right, an EGFR, uh, EGFR dermatologist. dermatologist. That's right. You know, I think it's great, and I think it is encouraging to see the other disciplines want to get involved. Just like recently, we've written a review that will come out soon on VEGF toxicities, and the first people we contacted at Anderson were our cardiologists, because what are the problems? Hypertension and other things. And so, you know, those are the things that they can help us with. And clearly, rash, you know, we treat, we talked about the chemotherapy, we've talked about growth factors. To me, the whole class of EGFR, it is such a shame when a patient has to stop or hold therapy due to a rash. I mean, think about it. You're giving someone a growth factor, they get into the hospital, they have neutropenic fever, you get in cultures, antibiotics, and they come back and you give them the next dose. We get someone with a rash and we're like, oh, well, that's it. We're not going to give them anymore. I think that's really something that can be avoided. And I always use the relationship when I discuss rash about diarrhea and arenotecan. You know, when those studies were first being done, people died from dehydration due to arenotecan. And it's because they developed the diarrhea, they didn't know whether they should take Imodium, and when they did start taking Imodium, it didn't work all the time, and they didn't know that they should call or seek help. And by the time they came back to the clinic, they were in bad shape. So it really requires a proactive approach from both the patient and the medical team to try and avoid these toxicities of rash. And I think the strategies that we've developed at MD Anderson are very similar to what Mario has also developed. And really, it's about being proactive, not just throwing creams on people and hoping it goes away. We really want to move to systemic therapies quickly, antibiotics and or steroids, to try and avoid any of these grade three toxicities. And so that is really where the focus is from both groups this meeting, this forum, and this paper that came out that Tom chaired was really trying to marry the two different strategies that were very similar and come to some consensus. And I really enjoyed the meeting. There was a lot of talk of sunscreen and other things that were very important for patients who are on these drugs, and I think we cannot highlight that enough. Prevention is very important, and early intervention with either antibiotic creams as well as moving to the next step quickly with systemic antibiotics, doxycycline or others. Many times people will say you can't use other antibiotics because we're using doxycycline in that class because of the anti-inflammatory effects. And I can tell you 
A pure acneiform rash does not have any type of bacteria in it. It's a sterile wound. And I, I would agree with that. But the problem is if they're like me and most other people, probably like you too, Neil, they're going to scratch it. And once they scratch it, it's infected. And so we have found that other antibiotics can also help. And in fact, I have some patients who have been on long-term Tarsiva use. And one gentleman, he is sort of an academician, and he will go to meetings occasionally. And I'll give him actually a course of doxycycline prior to his meeting. He takes it with him, and it clears him up. And he can look presentable in front of people, or so what he perceives as presentable. And, and then uh, it eliminates a lot of that. Same thing with this woman I'm treating in Florida. She will take a course of antibiotics to clear up her skin before a Christmas party or going on a cruise or something. And they really aren't that harmful, and they do help patients manage with the rash. What do we know about the non-antibiotic impact of the antibiotics? I've heard people talk about the fact that maybe there are other mechanisms involved. Yeah, and that's the anti-inflammatory effect, that you will see that drugs like doxycycline, erythromycin, they are used from a dermatologic standpoint when they're used for acne primarily as an anti-inflammatory. And so they just synergize with other effects that steroids or other NSAIDs may have as far as anti-inflammation. And so it's not so much an antimicrobial effect as, as much as it is an anti-inflammatory. From my experience, I think both the antimicrobial and the anti-inflammatory effect really help um, in management. Specifically in terms of cetuximab and head and neck and the two scenarios that we've talked about with radiation therapy and also with metastatic disease, how do you approach it from the point of view of, is there any preventive maneuvers that you use and how do you approach management? What we tend to do is we talk about it and we tell them that rash is one of the side effects other than the infusion reaction. We will recommend and give them prescriptions for both cleosin gel as well as a 1% hydrocortisone cream. Now, there is in the package label a suggestion that steroids should be avoided with cetuximab, but again, I don't know how valid that is. There's never been shown to be an inhibitory effect, and in fact, you can give steroids when someone has a hypersensitivity reaction as well. So I don't think a low amount of steroids is going to impair any effect with the cetuximab. Patients are then told to go home, take these creams, and the minute they get a spot, not 10, not 20, but a minute they get a spot, start using these creams. If after a few days, or five days, or seven days, they notice that the creams are not working, and in fact, there are more spots joining them, then they need to give us a call, and we escalate to the next level of therapy, which is oral antibiotics and or a Medrol dose pack. And doing this, early intervention, and aggressively with systemic therapy, we can avoid many of the complications of a grade three or four rash.